Hey, we are uh, going to continue on in our series, Lessons from the Desert, and uh, well, this will be week two, and we will be in the book of Exodus, chapter 16. If you have a Bible or Bible app, I invite you to turn there with us, Exodus 16. And so we are following the Israelites uh, on their journey from Egypt to the promised land. And if you know the story, you know that after God miraculously delivers his people Israel from Egypt by parting the Red Sea, um, before they can land in the place that God had promised to them, God has them wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And it's a journey as a community that was incredibly challenging and at times felt hopeless. Uh, the desert is a place of um, where, there, where there's not enough. It's a place that produces anxiety and causes fear and brings out the worst in people. And so as we journey with the nation of Israel uh, on their trek through the desert, we're also paying attention to those seasons and places in our lives that also feel like deserts. And so this week, we'll be in a rather well-known story in Exodus 16, and I'm going to read a pretty big chunk, the first 15 verses of Exodus chapter 16. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening, you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in a cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, thin flakes of, like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. 
So God's people are in this desert, this place that life can't be sustained, a place without all of the sources that we would typically look to for life. And as we defined it last week, the desert is a place where our perceived lack of abundance produces anxiety and brings out the worst in us. Okay, so we've all been in the desert in one way or another. And the question I want to start with this, this morning is why is Israel in the desert? How did they end up there? How do we end up there? Well, sometimes we end up in the desert due to suffering. Because of whatever painful circumstances have occurred in our lives, something that we've lost, we find ourselves in a, in a desolate, lonely, hurting place. So sometimes it's because of suffering. Other times, it's because of our sin and our disobedience. Sometimes we choose to rebel against God and to live our life apart from him and his ways, and we run and run so far for him, from him that we find ourselves deserted in a place without him, without a sense of his presence or his provision. So sometimes it's because of sin. Other times, it's actually because of obedience. Sometimes it's not us disobeying God, but actually obeying God that would lead us to a desert-like place. If you think about Jesus, immediately after his baptism, we're told that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. And so Jesus voluntarily, out of submission to God, entered into a place of suffering. In obedience, he followed God into the desert. So it can be suffering, it can be sin, it can be obedience, or it can also be God's discipline that would bring us to a desert-like place. The book of Deuteronomy is incredibly helpful when we are trying to understand the story of God and his people in places like Exodus. And it gives us a little bit more insight and reflection on the Israelites' time in the desert. So let me read for you in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so this is later on in the story, we're getting some insight into what's going on when God has his people in this wilderness where they're hungry and looking for their next meal. Why has God led them to that place? And he tells us that there's essentially two reasons. The first is to humble them. So God in his wisdom uh, sees that these people need to be humbled. And in the passage that we read in verse 12, it kind of climaxes with God trying to get this simple truth across. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. 
It seems like a really simple lesson for the people of God to learn, but apparently there was some confusion among the Israelites about who was God. And he wants to show them and be very clear with them that I am God and you are not. And when we learn that lesson, the result is humility. That we don't think more highly of ourselves than we ought, but that we see God as he really is. The one worthy of our praise, of our worship, and of our obedience. So first God leads them into the desert to humble them, and then he says to test them. And maybe that's a little bit of an uncomfortable idea of a God who would put his people to the test. But it's simply the idea that God is wanting to expose what's really in the hearts of his people. He puts them to a test to draw out what they really believe and where their true allegiance really lies. It's to expose what's already in their hearts. And so this whole story in Exodus 16 is about God humbling his people and testing them to expose what they really believe, what they are really trusting in instead of him. And both of those are simple acts of fatherly discipline. Okay, so for many of us, discipline, starting at a very young age, was, was a really bad word to us, right? You learn when you're a little kid that the worst thing that could happen was to be disciplined by your parents, right? Something you dread. I remember as a little, little kid, three or four years old, I don't know what I did, messing with one of my brothers or sister. My mom sends me to, room, to my room, and a spanking is coming. I know spanking is controversial. I grew up Baptist, all right? So that's how we rolled. And uh, I'm in, in the room waiting for the spanking, and it's, you know, the worst thing that could happen. I have this brilliant idea. I go and get an encyclopedia off the shelf and stuff it down the back of my pants, thinking my mom would never see it, right? <laughs> And I'm three, so this thing's like wider than me. If you don't know an encyclopedia, it's kind of like Google, but it's paper, and <laughs> people sold them door to door. I, you may not remember that, but, and I remember my mom coming in, and I, you know, she bends me over and just starts laughing, <laughs> and she goes ahead and spanks the book anyways. Um, so I, uh, but I mean, when you're little, when you're a kid, and as you're growing up, like to be disciplined by a parent or punished is the worst possible thing. And so we, we grow to resist it, to try to avoid it at any cost. But the Bible talks a lot about how God is a father. And not just a father, but he's the father, our father in heaven. And he's a good father. He's a good father who always does what is good and right, okay? And so before we start imposing some of our messed up ideas about what a dad is onto God, it's supposed to work the other way. We start with God and say, that's what a good dad is like. And what we see in the Bible is that a good dad, God the Father, disciplines his children. And so Deuteronomy 8.5, know then in your hearts that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord, your God, disciplines you. In Hebrews chapter 12, God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. 
Okay? So even though ever since we've been kids, we've avoided and resisted discipline, what the Bible is trying to teach us is that when God disciplines us as our Father, it's actually a good thing. It's actually out of love, and it's for our own good. It's to cast out those tendencies that would cause us to move away from him and towards death, and instead to form our hearts and to draw us more fully into him and the life that he's called us to. So God's a good father. He loves his kids, and he disciplines us. And so sometimes when we find ourselves in a desert, a place that's lonely, a place where we feel like we don't have what we need and we don't know how we're going to get it, we find ourselves there because God, in his wisdom and his fatherly love, is wanting to do something in us. He's wanting to form something in us. He's wanting to teach us something that will change our lives for the better. And so the worst thing we could do is to resist the desert in those situations. And the worst thing we could do is to pretend that the desert doesn't exist and to not be honest with ourselves or with each other about the fact that, yeah, this is a desert that I'm in. We really want to maintain the image of what we think a good Christian's supposed to look like, who's happy all the time and got it all together and got it all figured out. And so when we find our souls in a place of hunger or of thirst or dissatisfaction, we, we stuff all that down and pretend that we're okay, pretend that the desert doesn't exist. And in that case, we're completely going to miss out on what it is that God is wanting to teach us in that desert. And so the desert is an invitation in this test to dig down deep so that what's really in our hearts can be exposed. And the truth is, sometimes we're afraid of what's going to come out. If we're honest about the things that we're really afraid of. If we're honest about the doubts and the questions and the fears that we have about God and life and life with God. And so we think that Christian maturity means not having any questions, not wrestling with any of those feelings or issues. And the reality is that's why God's got us in the desert in the first place, to expose what's really in our hearts. And so this test has God leading the Israelites into this place where there's no food, and he's going, what are you going to do? How are you going to respond to this lack of food? And how does Israel respond? Well, we see not well. In verses 2 and 3, they begin to grumble. And they begin to say, we wish we could go back to Egypt. Or even they say, man, it would have been better if we just died in Egypt. The desert was that bad. We wish we would have just died. And so what's really in their hearts begins to get exposed. And what's exposed is this, really this language of addiction or slavery. Remember, Egypt was a place of slavery. And they longed to go back. 
It's like a little bit of a Stockholm Syndrome situation, right? They're beginning to have affection and a longing for those that imprison them. So I mentioned Ken and Tamara and others are in Thailand working on the Sold Project. If you know about those that are working to end human trafficking, you'll know that it, the hardest part of the job isn't simply freeing those who are in sexual slavery and getting them out of the loop. It's keeping them out, right? Because so many of these women and others that are part of these corrupt, horrible systems, once they've been delivered, there's this longing to go back. The brokenness is so deep, either because of drug addiction or psychological or emotional manipulation, that it's keeping the women from going back into it. That's how messed up and how deep it goes. And so the picture here is that it's actually easy to deliver someone out of slavery, but it's really hard to get the slavery out of that person. And that's what Egypt has experienced. They've passed through the Red Sea. They're not in Egypt anymore, but Egypt still has their identity, has their heart. It's still shaping their mind and their attitudes. And so God, in his fatherly love, is disciplining them to correct all that stuff that got messed up in them. He's saying, I'm not going to let you live as a mental and emotional and spiritual slave to Egypt. That's not the life I delivered you for. That's not what your salvation was for. I wasn't just saving you out of Egypt, but I was saving you unto myself. And God is so committed to that salvation becoming true in his people that he's willing to lead them into desolate places of hunger and thirst so that their hearts will be formed after him. And so they're two and a half months or so into their journey out of Egypt, and they're hungry. And the question they begin to ask in their grumbling is, is God really with us, and is God going to provide for us? So it's their question, but it's also our question, isn't it? Is God with us in the desert? And will God provide for us? See, that's not the kind of question you ask when everything's going your way. Those aren't the kinds of questions you ask when life is easy or smooth or comfortable. Those are only the kind of questions that emerge in the desert. And those are the questions that are like rooted deep within our hearts that we're too afraid to let come out. And so the desert reveals what's really in there. And so here's, here's what I would say. This is where we separate being part of a religious institution and actually following Jesus. Because I don't think there's anybody here today that showed up because I'm a huge fan of organized religion and I just want to be part of some sort of institution, right? We're here because there's something about Jesus that has compelled us to come to him, to chase after him. And the reality is that if you're simply looking for a, some sort of worldview or belief system or community to be part of that's just going to improve your life and help you be happier and healthier, then following Jesus isn't that. 
Because if we're going to follow Jesus, then what that would mean is that we need to follow him wherever he would lead us. And apparently, we have a God who will sometimes lead us into the desert, who will lead us to places that we would rather not go and cause us to ask questions we'd rather not ask and ask us to do things that we'd rather not do. And I would just say, if that's your experience of the Christian faith, that it feels like a war at times, it feels like there's something within you resisting following Jesus, then I would say that's a good clue that you're actually on the right track. That the Father's discipline is actually calling you out from where you were and leading you deeper into him. And so, in the desert... There's not enough food. Everybody's grumbling. They're panicking. They're anxious about where their next meal is going to come from. And God says, well, I'm going to provide bread from heaven. And miraculously sprinkles the land with this stuff called manna. And goes on to give some rules about how much to collect and what to do when you do and which days to collect and which days not to. But ultimately, this is God's bread that he provides for his people. And when we went back to Deuteronomy, we saw that what God was teaching there isn't just that you can trust me to meet all your physical needs, but he said, for man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So there's something deeper going on here in this story. When God says man does not live on bread alone, He's reminding us that there's more to the human than our physical body, right? And he's saying that there is something else which truly makes us human that also needs to be fed. So I'll probably botch this, and Rick can probably correct me later. In the biological world, you have two kinds of organisms, right? Autotrophs and heterotrophs. Autotrophs are those organisms that can feed themselves, that are able to create and generate their own food. Most plants, right? And then you have heterotrophs, hetero meaning other, meaning organisms that need food from the outside. And so what are humans? We are heterotrophs. We can't produce our own food from within ourselves. We need something else, something other, something outside of us to feed our bodies. And without food, we're dead. And so in a very real sense, as Israelite, Israel is wandering through the desert with no food, that's a legit concern. They can't come up with their own food. They need food to be provided for them. So humans are heterotrophic beings, but I would argue that this is also true. The human soul is a heterotrophic being. Just like our bodies need food from the outside to fill us, to satisfy us, to energize us, and to sustain us, so does our inner person. So does our soul. The human soul also needs something outside of itself to fill it and feed it and sustain it. We don't have what we need in and of ourselves 
to satisfy the longings of our soul. And so when God says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, he's going deeper than the body, isn't he? He's saying, your soul was designed to feed on me. You can't come up with your own food or sustenance on your own. You need something other, something else to come in and to give you fullness and meaning and joy and purpose in life. And the truth is that all of us are living this out in one way or another. Every single person has something or someone that they're looking to to feed to their soul. There's something that we believe that we cannot live without. That if we can just have that or keep that or move towards that, that it's going to give our lives purpose and meaning. And so all the time in our world, you see that when tragedy strikes, when we lose, whatever it is, if we lose that thing that we believe is life for our souls, then for all intents and purposes, we're dead. So stockbrokers and contractors that kill themselves when the market crashes. This plays out over and over in our lives. That thing that we're feeding on, looking to, goes away and it exposes what we, were, what we were latching onto as the food for our souls. And so God has got his people in this place where they're having to examine themselves, where they're having to expose these questions of who are we really trusting? What are we really looking to, to complete us, to fulfill us, to sustain us? Not just who's gonna give us physical bread, but who's going to be our God? Who's going to be our sustainer? Whose presence is going to be our portion? And is he going to be enough? We never ask those kinds of questions, except for when we're in the desert. And so the good news of this story is that God is the provider. God is the sustainer. God is with them, and he is faithful to his covenant to provide for them. And so he miraculously dumps this manna out of the sky. And he does it for 40 years until they come to the promised land. God proves himself faithful and able to feed their souls as well as their bodies. And so as we come into our world then and asking in our deserts, how are we to look for God's faithful provision in our life? I asked Kip about the possibility of dropping bread from the rafters, and he didn't think the janitors at Ben High would appreciate that. But we obviously don't get the privilege of simply going, yeah, drop something out of heaven, right? And that will be my sign. And I would argue what we have is actually something way better. We actually do have bread that comes from heaven, but it's not in the form of food, it's in the form of a person. And if you fast forward to the book of John, when Jesus miraculously feeds the thousands with the fishes and loaves, he takes his disciples backstage and he goes, let me tell you what this was really all about. He's like, just like Moses 
caused God to rain down bread upon the Israelites in manna, Jesus goes, here's the deal. I am the bread of life. I am the true bread of heaven that has come down to feed and to save your souls. So we don't just get weird little flaky scraps of food. We get a man. We get God's presence in human form. God who is with us, who loves us, who enters into our suffering, who takes on a body that gets hungry and thirsty and knows what it's like to be human. And he says, I am your manna. I am the food that your soul longs for. And for many of us, that's like, huh? I'd rather have bread, right? Because we haven't yet figured out how that story actually connects to our story. And the whole point of the desert is to bring us through to the other side in that journey. So one day we'll be able to say, like Corey Ten Boom, you'll never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. It's the only way we ever learn it. Because when all the other life support systems are eliminated and our journey is reduced to the basic elements of trust and God asking, will you let me heal you? Will you trust me? Will you receive my word as the sustenance for your soul? And so the question I would give you this morning then is this. Where in your life are you creating space to receive God's word? And why are we talking about God's word? Because humans don't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so when we talk about God's word in the Bible, or when the Bible talks about God's word, it talks about the scriptures itself, and it talks about Jesus as the word himself. God has given us himself in a way that can feed us, both through his son and through the scriptures. And the question I would ask is, when are you feeding on the life that God is offering you? Where are you creating space to take in the true bread of life that is Jesus? Because if I'm honest, there are times as I walk through the desert, big or little, whatever it is, where I begin to grumble. And I begin to get grumpy. And I start to feel either depressed or anxious, or lonely, or whatever it is. And I turn to God, and I go, what's the deal? This doesn't feel like abundant life. This doesn't feel like a soul that is full. Why, is this the life that you've invited me to? And oftentimes, when I go to God with those complaints... I'll simply hear him go, when's the last time you carved out space just to be with me? 
like the table's been set and the invitation is open. If you're hungry, God would say, I don't think it's my fault. And so Jesus says, yeah, I'm, I'm the bread of life. I am the true manna from heaven. I am the one that can feed your souls. But interesting enough, in the Exodus story, God doesn't just pop the manna into their stomachs, does he? Does he? He puts it on the ground, and they have to go pick it up. He invites his people to partner with him in their own formation. He invites us to actually respond to his invitation in faith and in obedience and to go to him so that we can receive life from him again. And so there's lots of different ways where we can receive the presence and the provision of God in our lives. I would say scripture has to be at the top of that list. It's an incredible gift, God's very word to us that most of us have a couple copies of on our shelves and a couple versions of in our pocket. He says, I want to feed your soul through my word. Will you receive it? For others of you, I know especially here in Bend, to be out in creation, to climb a mountain or to raft a river or to hike a trail, whatever it is, that's the place where you go and you hear God, you experience his presence. For some of us, it's in community and conversations and relationships where we can be vulnerable and authentic and prayerful with each other. And I would also argue that this experience, Sunday mornings, to gather for worship, to gather around God's word and respond in praise, all of these are opportunities for us to receive the bread of life. And so the invitation's open. Jesus is saying, I'm here. I will fill your hungry soul. But I'm not just going to pop it in your stomach. I'm going to lay it out for you to come and partner with me in your formation. I'll close with this. For some of you, when I tell you you should start reading the Bible or read the Bible more, you're going, I've tried and I don't like it. (laughs) I don't get anything out of it. I don't understand it. I don't remember what I read the next day, so what's the point? Well, let me just 